Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And uh, as you know, uh, Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon after he jumped out of God's will into the deep end of humanism, so to speak. Uh, he just jumped completely out of God's will for his life after about 22 years of being a good king. And he just dove into the deep end of humanism. Uh, Twenty-five times in this book you'll read the phrase, under the sun. In other words, what he did on earth. Now the Bible says, set your affection on things above, not on the things of this earth. He set his affection on the things of this earth. He looked for satisfaction in the things of this earth. He looked to earthly wisdom and earthly education and money and women and drinking and partying and he tried everything the earth could offer under the sun and he used the word vanity to describe it. In fact, the word vanity is used 33 times in the book of Ecclesiastes and it means emptiness. And he also used the phrase vexation of spirit over and over and over again which means depression. He said, I have tried everything the world has offered me and it left me empty and depressed. And then when he came back to his senses in the last couple years of his life, God allowed him to record the wisdom, albeit uh, some of it is sad wisdom, that he learned the hard way, uh, tragic way. And that's what Ecclesiastes is about. So it's a hard book. Uh, and we're going to try to get through the ninth chapter tonight. It's a hard book and uh, to understand, but it's basically the wisdom of a man who tried everything the world could offer and none of it satisfied and left him depressed and he's, he's kind of putting down on paper, even in this chapter, a bunch of his frustrations of things that he saw on earth that just seemed unfair and unjust. So let's get at it. Verse number one says, For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. Here we see the righteous, the wise, and the good works they do are in the hand of God. Uh, that's good to know. Our labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 uh, 58. So if you're a righteous person, if you're a wise person, and everything you do, your good works, they're in the hand of God. But I think the rest of the verse is saying you or I will have no idea how they are reacted to. How they are reacted to. Have you ever noticed in the Bible the reactions uh, at different times to people who were righteous, wise, and doing good works, like verse 1a says? Some people were met with hatred. The Apostle Paul, I think you would say, would fit the description of chapter 9, verse 1. He was a righteous man, a wise man, and his works were in the hands of God. Yet he was not received with love. He did not become a hero of the faith till after he had died. In fact, if you read closely the Bible, while he lived, he constantly had to defend his apostleship. He constantly had to defend his positions. He said this in Galatians 4 and verse 16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So here he was trying to do the work of God and some of God's people became his enemy because of things that he said. On the other hand, Stephen, 
it says great lamentation was made for him when he died. They loved him. There was a huge, huge funeral for him when he died. Not so with Paul. He said, at my first request, no man stood with me. He said, all men have forsaken me. What about Jesus? He was righteous. He was wise. He was full of good works. Matthew 27, 18 says, for he knew that for envy they had delivered him. You can go through a lot of characters in the Bible that were righteous, wise, and full of good works, and the world responded differently to them. Jeremiah they threw in a dungeon. Uh, Daniel they threw in a lion's den. The children of Israel there, the three Hebrew children, they threw into a fiery furnace. Uh, others, there was great lamentation made for them, like Hezekiah and Josiah the kings when they died. So who knows? Uh, what awaits us for our righteousness, our wisdom, and our good works. Many, many people may love us. Many people may appreciate us. Or the world may hate us. Think of the one guy, I think it was John Wycliffe, the Bible translator, uh, who the world hated him. They burned him at the stake. They buried him. Forty years later, uh, they dug up his bones and they uh, threw his bones. They burned his bones and threw his ashes out in the river. The river swift. I mean, that's how much they hated him. For what? Translating the Bible. You never know, it's saying here in verse number one, no man knoweth what kind of response you're going to get. You may end up with the largest funeral ever because people just love and appreciate everything you've done for the Lord. Or you may die in loneliness, a pauper. Uh, it doesn't matter how we die in this world. It's what awaits us in the next world uh, that matters. Verse 2 says, all things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner. And as he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath. And it goes on, of course, in the next verse we'll see that that one event it's speaking of in verse 2 is death. One event uh, happens to all. Uh, and it, it's, it's like there's no difference uh, between the two, whether they're good or evil, uh, whether they swear or they fear to swear, whether they sacrifice or they're selfish, whether they're good and clean or unclean. One event happens to all. It's like there's no difference when it comes to death. Death is no respecter of any uh, person. This has puzzled many people over the years. Uh, it puzzled Job. He said, if I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. Though I were perfect, yet would I not know my soul. I would despise my life. This is one thing, therefore I said, he destroyeth the perfect and the wicked. Job said there's no difference. God destroys the perfect and the wicked. We all die. Jeremiah 12, 1 says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Did you ever feel like doing that? Did you ever feel like saying to God, Lord, let me talk with thee of thy judgments? 
what's Jeremiah saying? He's saying, look, Lord, I don't quite understand what you're doing here. Uh, how come the wicked prosper? How come those that deal treacherously appear to be so happy? I'm not sure. Job was saying the same thing. He destroys the perfect and the wicked. I don't understand what God's doing. Well, remember Romans 11:33. we bring that up a lot. His judgments are past finding out. We just need to leave certain things, especially things like apparent injustices. Apparent injustices are not in our realm of judgment. They are in God's sovereignty. The best thing we can just do then is prepare for death and leave the events of life in God's hands. Jesus answering said unto them in Luke 13, 2, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell ye, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So he's talking about some that had been slaughtered and their blood was mingled in sacrifices and they, they lived in a country that was full of atrocities. And Jesus said, now you folks are tempted to look at those who live in countries of atrocities and think you're better than them. You know, in, in modern days it would be like saying to Americans, you might think you're better than these Iraqis because they have all these insurgents and suicide bombers coming down there and killing 12 people this day, 60 people this day, and that doesn't happen in America. But Jesus says, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. That's how they got it. You're going to get it differently. Or some kind of a disaster by chance. A tower fell over one day in Siloam, and 18 people were crushed and killed. Like yesterday, four guys were lifting a pole at a, a Boy Scout camp, and they lifted the pole into a high-voltage wire, and all four of them got electrocuted, four Boy Scout leaders. Well, you know, people like to enter into the realm of judgment when these things happen, and and like to think, well, those things don't happen to me. I must be better than them. Jesus said, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So apparent injustices are not in our realm of judgment. So don't make judgments like that. Uh, when somebody dies accidentally, when somebody gets a sickness and dies speedily, uh, don't be in that crowd that says, oh, he got cancer and died in six months. Uh, judgment, you know, God must have struck him dead for something. No, Jesus said, you better prepare, because your day's coming. I better prepare my day's coming. We need to forget about whether we think God is fair or not, and just prepare. Because one event happens to all. Verse 3 is that event. This is an evil among all things that are under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, all the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. We see the depravity of man. We see in verses 2 and 3 that he knows he's going to die, and yet he doesn't prepare. He rather gives his heart to the fullness of evil, and madness, craziness, is in their heart. They're, they live a life of depravity and insanity. Even though they know they're going to die, they make no preparation uh, for it. Man's depravity is exposed here in verse number 3. 
Man's depravity began to be exposed early in the Bible. In Genesis 6, 5, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8, 21, he said, The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So all through the Bible, we just see how depraved man is. Even saved people live like there's not going to be a judgment insanity but they live that way like there's not going to be any judgment for what we did today what we did this week or this month that's what verse 3 is talking about verse 4 for to him that is joined to all the living there is hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion for to him that is joined to all the living there is hope well, this could mean a lot of things, but I want to encourage you in verse 4a to stay joined to the church. That's the living. Uh, stay joined to the body of believers. As long as you stay joined uh, to the body of believers, there is hope. Uh, there's hope of maybe some life rubbing off on you. And, uh, there's hope of maybe some... Uh, 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 fire, heat, warmth, uh, rubbing off on you, some reviving. Uh, stay joined to the living. The old uh, uh, illustration of the briquettes, all these briquettes piled up and lighter fluid poured on them and they're lit and next thing you know they're all red and hot and glowing. But if you take one and you separate it from the pile of those that are red and hot and glowing, it, 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 it uh, goes out. The red disappears, it cools down, it turns gray, it turns cold, it turns hard because it's not joined to those that are warm. I want to encourage you to stay joined to the church. Stay joined to the living. In the church, there's always somebody on fire for God. There's always somebody who will provoke you to love and to good works, as it says in Hebrews 10, and verse 24. And 10, verse 25, the next verse says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Because there's always somebody who's going to provoke you to love and to good works. So stay joined to all the living. Uh, don't get away from the living. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. I think what it's just saying here is, is a humble person is better than a proud person. Now, of course, literally, a, a, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, of course, a lion is the... Uh, the uh, king of the jungle. He's uh, the uh, epitome of all beasts. Uh, a lion is. A dog it could be a mutt. It could be worthless. But the Bible is saying here it's better to be a living dog than to be uh, a dead lion. When we think maybe about this in spiritual terms, you know, there's a lot of people that have a lot of potential. They look like lions. They look like the king of the beast. They, they look like it. Uh, they look like, uh, you know, the one that should be respected the most. But if they're dead in sin and trespasses, it's better to be a living dog. Remember that lady that came up to Jesus and nobody was getting any miracles that day. But in Matthew 15, this lady who was a Gentile who needed Christ, said, boy, if I could just get near enough to him to touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made whole. 
And uh, so she plowed through all the Jews that were around Jesus and all the Gentiles, and she by faith got close enough to Jesus to touch the hem of his garment. And he stopped everything and he said, Who touched me? And the disciples were kind of concerned. They said, Well, Lord, you're, you're just thronged with people. What do you mean, who touched me? And he said, No, I mean, who touched me in a special way, for I sense that virtue has left me. Jesus sensed that power literally left his body and went into somebody else. And finally, this lady came and fell at the feet of Jesus. She thought she was in trouble. She said, I touched you. And, and she, she, she asked for a, a request, and, and the Lord said, it's not right to take the crumbs and, and uh, give them to the dogs. Or, or, or it's not, uh, he said, I'm just sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And uh, she said, but the dogs eat of the crumbs of the table. And, and she just portrayed herself as a dog before the Lord in that story, Matthew 15, 25-28. And the Lord honored her humility, and she got the miracle that she needed that day. Uh, see, it's better to be a, a living dog than a proud person uh, who's dead. It's better to be humble and just consider yourself nothing, but to be alive in the Spirit of God and to be proud and consider yourself everything uh, but to be dead. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Verse 5, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Someone once said, like it says here in verse 5, No man is ready to die, uh, no man is ready to live, rather, until he's ready to die. And that's so true. No man is ready to live until he's ready to die. Verse 5 says it this way, For the living know that they shall die. A person who's really alive knows that they're going to die. And their whole life is based upon preparing for that day. Do you know that today? Oh, you know it doctrinally in your head. But are you practicing it? Are you living every day as though you're going to die? This could be your last time and opportunity to influence someone for Christ, to do something for God. You're, I don't know, none of us knows for sure when we're going to die. But the living, those that are alive in the Spirit of God, know that they shall die, and they, they live every day uh, as though they might die. But the dead, those that are living in sin and those that have physically died, know not anything. Neither have they any more reward. They, they, they think they're invincible. They think they're going to live forever, but they're actually dead in their trespasses and sins and they'll have no reward nor memory. They'll have no reward or legacy. No one will remember them. For the, re the memory of them is forgotten. I don't know if you've ever walked through a, few, uh, a cemetery. I've walked through a few cemeteries recently at funerals I've done. I do this whenever I walk through a cemetery. I go around and read the, the stones, uh, people's names and granite, and usually their whole life is reduced to one little hyphen between two years their whole life, just a little hyphen. You know, so-and-so, 1909 to 1957, a little hyphen in between. That's their whole life. And the dead are there. They'll never live anymore. Uh, it's a good thing to do. Uh, notice, not only do they die, but notice something else that perishes with them when they die. Verse 6, also their love and their hatred and their envy 
is now perished. All their emotions die with them. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Boy, you can get a good education out in a cemetery. You can go by those stones and you can point at any stone and say, you know, that lady right there once lived. Who knows what kind of a life she lived, but she used to have love, she used to have hatred, she used to have envy. That man used to live right there that's dead. The memory of him is forgotten. Nobody ever remembers this person except their name on a gravestone. He used to love, he used to hate, he used to have envy. He used to have jealousy. Maybe he was a proud man. Maybe he was an arrogant man. Maybe he went through life thinking he was invincible. He went through life maybe thinking the whole world, everything in the world was just about him, and now he's dead and forgotten. Now he's dead and forgotten. Well, there's an education in that. There's an education right here in verse number 6. All these emotions you, you know, that, that we have are going to die and they're going to perish with us. They're going to perish with us. Neither is there going to be any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. So we ought not to live for the here and now. We ought not to waste our emotions on envy. Jealousy, hatred, lust, pride. What empty things that will be buried with us that have no eternal portion or value. We ought to just live for God and live for the eternal and set our affection on things that are above. So verses 1 through 6 is again Solomon just talking about the frustration of life and how death ends it all. Even our emotional life ends there. And he seems to especially be talking about evil people in verses 1 through 6. Now, if you notice in your Bible, at verse 7, there starts a new paragraph. And verses 7 through 10 is the next paragraph, and it seems to now switch its attention over to the righteous. And what a difference uh, is spoken of the righteous people here in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. Let's look at verse 7. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. He seems now to turn his attention to those whose works are accepted by God, whereas previously we see those whose works and memory and rewards are just forgotten and buried with them. Boy, the unsaved, when they die, they take nothing with them. Nothing. But when we come to know Christ as our Savior, then God accepts our works. God never accepts the works of anybody before salvation. But after salvation, it's all about our works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But Ephesians 8, 10 says that once we're saved... For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Everybody here is ordained. If you're saved, you're ordained. You're ordained to do good works and to walk in good works from the moment you're saved. Works before you're saved are absolutely worthless. They perish with the person who dies. But we're saved unto good works. We're saved to do good works for the rest of our lives, and now God accepteth our works. Isn't that great? Once we're saved, God now begins to accept our works. 
And I want to give you a little alliteration here in verses 9, 10, um, and uh, 11. Uh, or 8, 9, and 10, rather. I want you to notice in verse 8, maintenance instructions. Verse 9, marital instructions. And verse 10, ministry instructions. Now that God accepts our works, and we now turn our attention to those that are saved, uh, notice we have maintenance instructions in verse 8. Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. In other words, always maintain your garments, and never let your head lack ointment. Now these are figurative. There's a spiritual application to this in the Bible. Because garments always speak of righteousness. They are a type or a picture of righteousness. And oil or ointment on the head is always a picture or a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So it's saying now that you're saved, now that God accepts your works in verse 7, maintain your garments and maintain your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Remain under the anointing of God. We need to maintain our garments. Verse 8 says, Let thy garments be always white. Let your garments be always white. Jude uh, said it this way in the book of Jude, in chapter 1 and verse 23. It says, And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. You notice how we're supposed to maintain our garments there as believers. That is the righteousness that Jesus Christ has given to us. I think the thing that made me the most nervous about Rachel's wedding this year was the fact that we had purchased the dress probably seven or eight months before the wedding. And it was hanging up in the house and I, I just had this constant fear that something was going to happen. Something was going to spill on it. Uh, you know, something was going to get into it or whatever. And, and uh, because we just wanted those garments to be perfect on the wedding day. Uh, we wanted to, to uh, keep them, uh, the garment maintained so it looked perfect when the wedding day came. And so we followed the instructions. We kept it hung up and we allowed air to get to it but kept it covered, all those things. And, 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 and you can just imagine what it would be like if, if it was your wedding day, ladies, and, and you put on your dress or something and decided to be a rainy day that day and you're walking into the church and you slip and fall and get a big green grass stain on your dress or mud on your dress. That would ruin your day, wouldn't it? See, it's very important as you approach your wedding day that you maintain your garments. Let thy garments be always white. And just as we try to meticulously maintain a bride's dress before her big day, so the Bible is saying, now that you're saved, now that God accepts your works, let thy garments be always white, or as Jude said, hating the garment spotted by the flesh. A bride would hate that mud, that grass stain that got on her dress. It would ruin her day. And it's the same thing with us. We, we shouldn't be living in the flesh. 
you know, which one of us would want to stand before Jesus Christ in white garments having mud slung all over us? And yet that's how I fear some people are going to stand before the Lord because they haven't been living in the Spirit. They haven't been maintaining um, their righteousness. And uh, they're living in the world and they're full of the flesh. And they're not going to be clean before the Lord. They'll be saved, but they're not going to be clean. It says, let thy head lack no ointment. Always be anointed. And the Bible talks about how the anointing is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 92 and verse 10 says, But my horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. We need to always have our heads anointed. That means we need to always be filled or under the anointing or under the overwhelming. That's what the word anointing means. The overwhelming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit should overwhelm the believer at all times. So once you're saved, we have maintenance instructions. Maintain your righteousness, your convictions, your standards, your holiness. Maintain your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't quench Him. But then there's also, in verse 9, marital instructions. We've got maintenance instructions, and now verse 9, marital instructions. Those of you that are married know uh, how much maintenance is required to have uh, a good marriage. It doesn't just happen. Notice verse 9 here. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Um, he wants us to uh, pay attention to our uh, marriages. So we have maintenance instructions, verse 8, marital instructions. And what does it say here? Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest. You know, it, it ought to be a joy to be married. It ought not to be a grief. It ought not to be something you endure. It ought to be a joy. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity. Uh, be sure your wife is your best friend. Uh, have a lot of fun with her. Live joyfully with her. Uh, this is what God has given you to enjoy under the sun. For this is thy portion in this life. It says, which he hath given thee. We need to realize that our wives came from the Lord. A prudent wife is from the Lord. Now, of course, you, you want to make sure you get your wife from the Lord. Now, some guys go out and uh, you know, get their wives from the world and uh, get their wives through the, uh, the lusts of their flesh and so on and so forth, and they have a hard time at it. Uh, Solomon himself uh, knew about that. Go back to chapter 7 and verse 26 just for a minute, and we'll try to keep going along here. The last parable is going to go quickly when I get to it in this chapter. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 26 tells us you better marry the right woman, man. It says, I find more bitter than death. And, and, and death is about the most bitter thing anyone can experience. But he said, here's something more bitter than death. And that is what? The woman whose heart is snares and nets and her ha hands is bands. And all of you unmarried men, you might want to underline these next words here. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape her. There is a woman whose heart and her hands are not right with God. 
She is a woman who wants to snare a man. She wants to net a man. She just wants to capture a man. She doesn't want to marry a man. She wants him in bands. She wants him in manacles like he's her slave. That's what the word bands means. It's the manacles of a prisoner. There's some women that actually approach men that way. I, he's mine, you know, I, I, and being married to her is bondage. It says at the end of verse 26, but the sinner shall be taken by her. The guy that doesn't know what he's doing is going to be taken by a woman. You need to stay away from possessive women, controlling women, domineering, dominating women. You unmarried guys, you better check out her person. If you can't get along with her before you're married, well, forget it. Uh, find someone you can uh, someone that you can fulfill, chapter 9, verse 9, live joyfully with the wife of thy youth. God wants our marriages to be a joy. Uh, he just wants them to be a riot. And uh, he, he wants them to be uh, something, uh, our wife, someone that we love. Notice the word lovest. You're supposed to love your wife all the days of your life. Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Strive to make your marriage enjoyable. And then we have ministry instructions in verse 10. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. And if you're going to do it, do it now, he's saying. And if you're going to do it, do it with your might. Ministry instructions. Find out what God wants you to do and do it with all your might. Don't give Jesus half an effort. If you have some position in the church, don't give it half an effort. Do it with all your might. Someone once asked these questions. If not here, where? If not you, who? If not now, when? Good questions. That's what he's saying. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Because when you die, there's no work nor device nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. As soon as you die and take your last breath, your opportunity to work for God is over. Or as Jesus said it in John 9 and verse 4, work while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. So find out what your work is. God saved you for a work. And find out what it is and get at it. All right, verse 11. Here's one of the more puzzling uh, um, Verses in the Bible, but it's in there. I'm not going to try to tiptoe around it. Uh, some people don't like this, but I, I believe it's what the Bible says. It says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. And here it is, but time and chance happen to them all. There's some times where there's just no explanation for a person's success, but they just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Time and chance. The world would say they lucked out. This goes both ways. I really do believe this, and this is a hard thing for some people to understand. Uh, it can be both good or evil. Time and chance happens to people. And I want you to get this truth in your head because there might happen, there might be something that happens in your life by time or chance. And if you're not careful, you'll blame God for it. There's just this thing called time and chance in the Bible. Not everything is scheduled in our lives. 
Years ago, I read about a pastor and his wife and three children that were driving down the road, and as they were driving down the road full speed, there was no skid marks whatsoever that would indicate there was no warning. An oak tree fell down and crushed their car, killed the pastor, his wife, and two out of the three children in the back seat. Now people debate, why did God do this? Why did God let this happen? Folks, again, you might disagree with me here, but there's some things in this life that are just kind of wound up by God's timetable of events called nature. And when an oak tree happens to rot out and the wind happens to hit it right, eventually it's going to fall down. And anything that might happen to be around it when it falls down might get hurt. And so I don't believe the question is, why did God let that happen to the pastor and his wife and his two kids? I just think there's certain things that, that God has wound up in his creation and they're going to go. And you, If you happen to be walking through a field sometime and just happen to be walking right in the path of a rattlesnake and the rattlesnake nails you and kills you, all right, I'm not saying that God in heaven one day planned on his calendar, okay, so-and-so is going to walk through a field and a rattlesnake is going to bite him and kill him. There's such a thing in the Bible as time and chance. And um, so sometimes people blame God. You know, you're driving down the road and some drunkard comes over the hill the other way and hits your head on and kills you. You know, I don't believe that event was ordained by God to happen to somebody. There's such a thing as time and chance. It's right here in the Bible. I can't explain it. First Samuel 6, 9 says, And see, if it goeth up by the way of his coast to Beth Shemesh, then he hath done us this great evil. But if not, then he shall know that it is not his hand that smote us. It was a chance that happened to us. Here's a story, and I'll close with this. Uh, the rest of the chapter, verses 12, talks about the same thing. For man also knoweth not his time, as the fishers that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in a snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. You know, fishers don't know that they're going to run into a net, and animals don't know they're going to walk into a trap. And it's the same thing with men, the Bible says. So sometimes we don't know what's going to happen. There is no explanation for some events in life. Now the rest of the chapter is about a parable of a wise poor man and how he delivers the city. Uh, wisdom is better than weapons of war. The chapter ends up, but but uh, that it's a parable. It's a parable. And verses 13 through 18, about a poor young man, who's uh, old man that saves the city by his wisdom. And as soon as he saves it, his wisdom is forgotten. Uh, which the story, I think, is just pretty much saying this. Look, you know, this world's not going to remember wise people. It's just not on their list of priorities. I mean, they'll remember rich people, athletic people, inventors, educators, painters, musicians, uh, singers, uh, Hollywood stars. The world will remember these people. Build monuments to them. But if you're a wise person, don't 
expect a lot of appreciation and remembrance, no matter who you help, okay? Just rejoice in the fact that you were able to help somebody with your wisdom. But going back to time and chance, I'll close with this story. The Bible does talk about time and chance uh, here in verse number uh, 11. Some things happen evil to people just by time and chance. Some things happen good to people just by time and chance. Columnist L.M. Boyd recently described the amazing good fortune of a man named Jack Worm. W-U-R-M. In 1949, Mr. Worm was broken out of a job. One day he was walking along a San Francisco beach when he came across a bottle with a piece of paper in it. As he read the note, he discovered that it was the last will and testament of Daisy Singer Alexander, heir to the Singer sewing machine fortune. The note read, quote, To avoid confusion, I leave my entire state to the lucky person who finds this bottle and to my attorney, Barry Cohen, share and share alike, end quote. According to Boyd, the courts accepted the theory that the heiress had written the note 12 years earlier and had thrown the bottle into the uh, Thames River in London from where it had drifted across the oceans to the feet of a penniless and jobless Jack Worm. His chance discovery netted him over $6 million in cash and Singer stock. How would you like to have been making Mr. Worm's footsteps on that San Francisco beach? What a find. And uh, so there's a time, you know, time and chance sometimes happens to people. And it has nothing to do with God. Or it has nothing to do without God. It's just time and chance. So there are some things, folks, that, that we tend to blame on God uh, uh, or we may even thank the Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord, that I hit the lottery. I remember one lady in an independent Baptist church in Idaho hit the lottery, 80, $83 million. Thank you, Lord, for letting me win the lottery. And she came to the pastor and said, I want to tie this. He says, I don't want a penny of your money in this church. You can take your filthy lucre and go somewhere else with it. She did. She went to Hollywood. She became friends with some Hollywood stars. She lost her purity. Uh, she lost her virginity. She lost every penny of her money. And she was, last I heard, left homeless. I, and by the way, God has blessed that pastor. We support one of his missionaries. And God blessed the church without that kind of money. So we've got to be careful. Sometimes what we give God credit for, we've got to be careful sometimes what we blame him for. It has nothing to do with him. Time and chance happens to all. That's what the Bible says. There's no other explanation for some things that happen in this life. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Just bless now the remainder of our service. And Lord, these are hard chapters, hard verses to understand. Uh, Lord, give us some insight that could help us, especially, Lord, help us to maintain our righteousness, help us to maintain our marriages, and help us to maintain our good works for God and do it with all our might and what little time we have left. For that is what will be remembered. In Jesus' name, amen.